right, we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, Our first sermon reading today comes from Mark chapter 8. I will read verses 31 through 38. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And he called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whosoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in his glory of his Father with the holy angels. Uh, Our next scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll start with verse uh, 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for this trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory for our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable always, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are also to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may be prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should also go, they will accompany me. And our sermon text today comes from Mark chapter 12. Verses 41 through 44. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they are contributing out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she has had, all she had to live on. So we are continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark And particularly, we're centering on a series of nameless women whose stories Mark includes in his gospel to make some profound points. Mark writes his gospel to redefine the kingdom of God and the Messiah 
by presenting Jesus as a different kind of king. And Jesus' kingdom is different, upside down, backwards from what might be expected. And one of the big questions Mark has to address to his audience early on is how to make sense of a crucified Savior. Remember that crosses were very real to these people. The cross was the end, and it symbolized the defeat of a failed revolution. What is it about Jesus that makes him different? That is the question the Gospel of Mark was written to answer. In order to build his case, Mark takes special care to elevate different marginalized groups of the ancient world, including women. He purposely juxtaposes these stories of the nameless women that we are talking about with stories of the disciples in order to highlight key aspects of the true nature of Jesus and the kingdom of God. In fact, I would go so far as to say, and the point I've really been making through this series is that Mark portrays this series of nameless women in such a way that they come across as the ideal disciples in a way that the 12 disciples never really do. Now, in order to follow Mark's argument, we have to understand what Mark is doing in his gospel. He divides the gospel into two neat halves once again, revolving around this question of Jesus and his identity. In the first half, Jesus' identity is kept secret. Jesus warns people repeatedly about revealing that he is the Messiah. It's what scholars refer to in the biz as the messianic secret. And he does this because who the Messiah was and what the Messiah about was generally thought to be understood by the people. Most people were looking for a military figure who had crushed the Romans. And revealing Jesus' identity too early risked jeopardizing his mission before Jesus' teachings could correct these false ideas about the Messiah. Mark chapter 8 acts as a major turning point of the whole book. After Mark 8, Jesus no longer hides his identity as Messiah, and that decision will lead ultimately to the cross. At the cross, Jesus the Messiah, who is supposed to crush the Romans, is instead crushed by the Romans. Of course, we know the outcome. Mark ends with the announcement by the angel that Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, has risen, and that the tomb is empty. The victory by the Romans turns out to be a false victory. The cross and crucifixion are instead a means of a great and paradoxical victory by Jesus. Now, our first reading in Mark is this turning point in Mark that I'm talking about, where Jesus' identity as the one who is the Messiah is clearly and openly established. After this declaration in Mark, nothing will ever be the same again. So this passage has major importance to the story Mark is trying to tell. However, the key feature of this passage is not so much the announcement that Jesus is in fact the Messiah, but what Jesus then goes on to say about what being the Messiah actually means. For Jesus, being the Messiah means suffering, rejection by the religious leaders, and even death. So shocking is this revelation that one of Jesus' closer followers and soon to be major leader of the early Christian movement, an eventual martyr and the source of the book of Mark, Peter, takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. 
Peter is so offended by Jesus' description of what it means to be the Messiah that Peter argues with the very person that only moments ago he acknowledged was not just a prophet, but the actual Messiah. Jesus' response to Peter is equally shocking. Jesus answers by rebuking Peter. So there's a lot of rebuking going on at Mark. I don't know that I've ever actually rebuked anyone. Chris, have you ever rebuked anyone? I'm sure you have. Yeah, I have. You seem like a rebuker. I'm a rebuker. We do have children. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> in any event, not only does Jesus respond by rebuking Peter, but he identifies Peter with Satan. Notice that he doesn't say that Peter sounds like Satan, but actually calls Peter Satan. So offensive is Peter's denial of Jesus' messianic mission. Then Jesus goes on to explain that the reason for Jesus' then, then Mark goes on to explain that the reason for Jesus' heart rebuke is that Peter has fundamentally and dangerously misunderstood what it means to be Messiah. According to Jesus, Peter's idea of Messiah is based on typical human ideas of power and conquest that have afflicted the world for its entire history. Such thinking will lead only to more of the same and not to the liberation and freedom that is intended. That is why Jesus must categorically reject Peter's rebuke. Jesus, who Peter has just pulled aside, then assembles everyone he can possibly find to explain to them in no uncertain terms what the kingdom of God and the Messiah is all about. Jesus associates it not with honor and a throne, but with a cross, a symbol of shame and defeat. The cross was the end for all previously failed revolutions and would continue to be so for some time. But for Jesus, it will be a victory. But a victory that is won not through power, but through service and sacrifice. It's a victory won not through the taking of life, but through the giving of one's own life. It's a victory that to all accounts looks like a defeat. It's going to cost everything to Jesus. And so Jesus expects nothing less from his followers than their willingness to give their lives as well. It's a paradox that for Mark and for Jesus is the most fundamental truth that Mark's readers and Jesus' followers need to understand. It's the key to this upside-down, backwards kingdom that Mark is trying to present to us. So here again, we have another story of the disciples, here represented by Peter, failing to understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, if we turn now to our sermon text, we come to the story of another nameless woman in Mark. A story occurs after the triumphal entry as Jesus enters Jerusalem. Jesus has condemned the temple and the corrupt leadership behind it. He has driven out the money changers and declared the temple a den of robbers. Soon, Jesus will prophesy the destruction of the temple, claiming that there will not be one stone left upon another. Here, he sits in the temple courtyard with his disciples in the typical position for a teacher, this time observing the treasury. The treasury was an area in the temple where offerings were stored. If you remember, the temple was organized in increasing zones of holiness. In the center was the Holy of Holies, where God was thought to dwell. And humans were not allowed to penetrate. Outside of this was the holy place where only the priests were allowed. And outside of this was an area where male worshipers were allowed. 
Further outside of this was the court of women, which was only slightly holier than the court of Gentiles, which surrounded this. The treasury was located here in this court of women. It was in this court that Jesus is sitting and teaching. And along the sides of this court were 16 wooden boxes, each with a trumpet-shaped opening made of bronze. And what would happen was the worshipers would pass through and deposit their coins, their offerings, in these trumpets. And because they were metallic, they would have magnified the sound of the offerings that were dropped, allowing everyone to hear and therefore register the size of the offering. At this time, Israel, like many cultures in the Middle East, had developed into an honor culture. And so status was the most important commodity in the attainment of social power. A measure of status was wealth, and so the temple offering provided quite an opportunity to demonstrate one's status. Remember that according to the thinking of the time, wealth and status were a sign of blessing and therefore a demonstration of God's favor. Jesus' teachings, mostly all throughout Mark, have been an attempt to subvert this whole honor culture system. Earlier, Jesus had said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogue in the places of honor at feasts. What Jesus has done in such attacks is, is attack all these signs of status that were so important uh, to these, the, uh, the, the, an important determiner of honor. As the rich and the wealthy halves of society made their large donations, Jesus turns the disciples' attention away from them to the poor widow. Now, it's been pointed out many times, and it bears repeating that widows, along with foreigners and orphans, are constantly used as an example in Scripture of people on the very margins of society. Uh, These three categories basically stand in for the idea of the have-nots. The Torah commanded special care of these groups. The Torah mandated uh, concern for them uh, that had been displayed. uh, uh, Excuse me, let me go back. The the Torah had had mandated care for them, but this honor culture had displaced this care. The poor were now seen as deserving of their low status because social position was determined by God's blessing and God was clearly withholding his blessing from those such as the poor widow. We see the poor widow drop two copper coins in the box. This would have barely made a sound. These two coins are called lepta and they were the smallest coins in circulation. Note that the text specifically tells us that she gave both coins. She could have dropped one and kept the other, but no, she offers both. Jesus holds her offering up as a contrast to the wealthy, declaring her offering greater because the poor widow had given all that she had. It's a paradox, and we often find Jesus using paradox in her teaching. And paradox is a great rhetorical technique because it's a statement that on its surface is contradictory. It shocks us. But upon reflection, it reveals a deeper truth. They seem absurd at first, but upon investigation, they prove to be well-founded. And the point of using a paradox is to show that the order of the world that you are comfortable with actually is not so simple and more complicated than it appears. Ideas that you may have thought of basic 
are revealed by the paradox to be misleading. In this way, paradoxes are meant to subvert established ideas and beliefs that are held about the way the world works. So the paradox is this, that this woman who gave two insignificant coins gave not only more than the wealthiest offer, but more than all those who contributed to the offering box put together. Jesus' explanation for making such a statement is that in absolute terms, the difference between the widow's gift and the wealthier gifts is large. However, in relative terms, the woman has given everything she has, whereas the wealthy have not even come close to matching such generosity. What seems insignificant is really the ideal, and what seems ideal is really insignificant. It's the paradox. In fact, Jesus doubles down on this point, declaring that the poor widow has given her whole life. The Greek is very clear here. It uses the word bios, as in the word we get our word biology from. Only a few short chapters ago, Jesus had tried to have his disciples understand what it meant to be the Messiah and to offer his whole life, and Peter had rebuked him. Jesus then gathers his disciples and explains, once again in paradoxical language, that his ideal disciples were those who give their whole lives. Again, we see in Mark another nameless woman grasping a truth and demonstrating it in a way that the disciple bros all fail to do. So the lesson of the widow is clear. She is willing to give her whole life. Her story forces us to be moved by her actions and therefore to reevaluate our own giving. She serves as a timeless example to the rich and poor, urging generosity and giving. This is the lesson that the poor widow teaches. A lesson that perhaps might be overlooked if Jesus did not take the time to point it out. It's dramatic. It's beautiful and perfect in its simplicity and its universal application. And it's the reason it's so cherished. Probably many of us the first time we heard this story were taken by it. So, I guess that means we can all go home now and do whatever it is we do on Saturday afternoon. Great. What are you going to do this Saturday afternoon? Oh, he's not here. <laughs> Josh, what are you going to do this Saturday afternoon? Sunday afternoon? <laughs> I don't know. Not yet? Miles, what are you going to do? Um, I'm going to go to the pool. You're going to go swimming? Yeah. What are you going to do, Caden? Pokemon Go. You're going to play Pokemon Go? All right. Soccer game. Okay, so everybody, we're going to go swim, figure out what to do, play soccer, knowing that we have fully absorbed the truth of the poor widow's story. Not quite yet. Because there's another way to look at this story. The point I made is perfectly reasonable if we read this story in isolation. However, we know that Mark frequently uses context to communicate his readings. That's the point of our favorite Mark uh, rhetorical device, right? What's their favorite Mark and rhetorical device? The Mark and Sandwich. We love the Mark and Sandwich. So let us look again at this passage, but let's look at it within the larger context. Just before the story of the poor widow, Jesus had denounced the scribes. I actually quoted these words earlier. They walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogue in the places of honor at the feast. The scribes love the status that's afforded to them. Of course, this is totally opposite of Jesus' teaching of being a servant and the last being first. 
However, this is not the only reason Jesus denounces the scribes. If you look in your Bible, notice what it says in verse 40. They devour widows' houses. And for a pretense, make long prayers, they will receive their condemnation. You see, What Mark is telling us is that the wealth and affluence of the scribes as reflected in their status and privilege that Jesus so condemns was a result of their devouring widows' houses. Now, we're not exactly sure what is meant by devoured widow houses. One possibility is that the public pious behavior and status of the scribes earned them a position as trustees of widows' estates. Remember, at this time, widows had no real women, uh, had no legal status. And so a man would have to administer estates. We can't let a woman do that. It takes little imagination for us to see uh, how this system would become rife with corruption especially as a scribal trustee was entitled to compensation for their duties. Now, whether this is correct or not, uh, Jesus is clearly condemning the scribes for exploiting this vulnerable and defenseless group. This is possibly one way they might have done it, but it's sure it's something of this order. And of course, this is totally at odds with the teaching of the Torah, with its special concern for the care of marginalized groups, such as widows, orphans, and foreigners. So what we have is Jesus calling out the scribes for defrauding widows, immediately followed by the story of the poor widow. And so Mark wants us to understand the poor widow's story in conjunction with this passage. So now we understand that this poor widow is in a state of poverty because of the actions of the religious elite. And yet we still find her giving her temple offering, as is her duty. But it gets worse. See, the two copper coins the woman gives would have been used to pay for what? Food. For for, for food, but who? For the priestly elite, for the upkeep of the temple, for temple building projects. Uh, It would have been used to support this very same corrupt religious system uh, whose economic opportunism had left her nearly penniless. Mark wants us to see this whole loathsome system and be outraged by it. Now, if we look at the section immediately following the story of the poor widow, let me read Mark 13, 1 and 2. And as he being Jesus came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus had earlier condemned the temple as not worthy of veneration or protection because of its failure to produce good food. Now Jesus sees the temple only as a system of corruption, uh, symbolized by the story of the widow. And here he finds that it must be sentenced to destruction. So now... If we read this story within the larger context of Mark, we find the poor widow has been reduced to poverty by the oppression of the temple elites. False piety has been imposed on this woman, leading her to contribute to this system. The small amount of money she she still retains after being robbed by the religious authorities. And Jesus, seeing this, is enraged 
uh, by the exploitation of this poor widow who had given her whole life to support this terrible system. It's a system that must be confronted. It must be destroyed. And it's why Jesus teaches and takes the actions that he does. With this reading, Mark is showing a woman who is to be pitied and defended. She has been taken advantage of by the erroneous teachings of this evil religious uh, elite. Her giving is not an example to be praised, but it's an action that should be lamented as we are outraged by her treatment, by those tasked with her protection. Furthermore, her offering is ultimately futile as it supports the very temple that Jesus has condemned to destruction. So if we read this story in a larger context, we derive a completely different lesson from the example of the poor widow. No doubt you grew up hearing sermons at times that use the story as a means to urge church congregations to give sacrificially, perhaps to increase donations for church building projects of various kinds. And we see that this story is making pretty much the opposite point. So now we can go home and go to the pool and watch the soccer game, secure in the knowledge that we have learned the lesson, the true lesson, of the poor widow, right? No. I think, though, as strong as the case is for this reading, and as logical as it sounds, it does seem a bit unsettling, doesn't it? Something doesn't quite seem right about this approach. The poor widow has gone from demonstrating true piety to simply being misguided, right? It's hard to read this story, even with fresh eyes and the context that I did, and reach the conclusion that Jesus is simply lamenting her action rather than praising her action. After all, she's a nameless woman, and the whole point of my series is that Mark is purposely using these stories as something to be praised. Why would we expect this woman's story to be any different? At the same time, her offering is still supporting this corrupt and exploitive temple system that Jesus is condemning and sentencing to destruction. There's no doubt that her offering is ultimately futile, and though it may be praiseworthy and laudable, it's failed. So maybe it turns out that we don't know the meaning of the story of the poor widow, which is bad, because that means we can't go home and play in the pool or watch soccer. So what do we do? Now what? Well, that was, uh, that was my burden as I wrote this sermon and looked at it from all these ways. But I actually think that the answer is that there's some truth to both these approaches. I also think there's a way to resolve this problem. And in doing so, I think we learn something beautiful and amazing that Mark wants us to understand about the kingdom of God. Now, in order to resolve this problem, we need to look back at our Mark 8 passage and look at this conflict Jesus has with Peter. Now, as has been this premise of this whole series, Mark is contrasting the actions of the uh, the disciples uh, with these unnamed women. In Mark 8, the problem is that Peter does not understand that the central mission of Jesus as the Messiah is to sacrificially give his whole life. It's exactly what the widow woman is described as doing by offering her two coins. It's exactly what is praised by Jesus in her action. The wealthy contributed out of the abundance, 
But she gave everything she had her whole life. In this way, the widow's offering is a picture of what Jesus does at the cross. Jesus' announcement of his mission as as the Messiah, as the giving of his whole life, is what leads to Peter's rebuke. Why is it that Peter reacts so strongly to Jesus' words? So strongly that he draws Jesus aside and tells him to his face he's wrong. And the answer is, because to Peter and everyone else, the cross and death mean only one thing, failure. What is the point of all of this if it only leads to death? Jesus' actions, the disciples' actions, Peter's actions are ultimately futile if it ends at the cross and death. In fact, we could say that it would be a lot like a widow giving everything she had to a temple that is sentenced to destruction. So now we begin to see that this widow exemplifies Jesus in more ways than one. The widow exemplifies Jesus in her willingness to give her whole life as Jesus does. But she also demonstrates the failure of Jesus' teaching admissions as they lead to his own execution. It is this failure that is summed up and symbolized in the shameful crucifixion on the cross that leads Mark to write his whole gospel. Mark is trying to get us to understand that the true meaning behind Jesus' mission in order to show that what Jesus has done is not failure and not futility, but the first time in history, something that is truly revolutionary, something that turns everything upside down. What Jesus is teaching is that to save one's life is to lose it, and to lose one's life is to save it. This, too, is a paradox. Confronting the simple idea we have of our own experiencing and challenging and subverting it. It is a paradox that is lived and finds expression in this beautiful story of a poor widow. And it will ultimately find its truest expression in the cross. It is a truth that leads from frustration and futility to creativeness and generivity, from failure to victory. And it does this because it turns out that the giving of one's life, of sacrifice, is the solution to the violence and exploitation and oppression that has subjugated poor widows in the past and those who are unfortunate in our own present age. Jesus has confronted the evil of this world as the forces of religion and power symbolized by ancient Israel and Rome team up to crush him. Rather than fight, Jesus takes on the plight of those in every time and every place that have stood up and suffered for others, throwing himself against this wheel of history and allowing himself to be crushed by it, but crushing it in return. Therefore, the result is not failure, as Peter was so convinced must be the case, but rather victory as Jesus conquered death. For as Paul tells us on this chapter, his great chapter on resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, death has been swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Then here is what I think is the best part. And what I think the best message ever given to poor widows and all the others who struggle mightily and heroically, giving of themselves against a system where their actions are futile and fail. Paul says because of the resurrection, 
Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord you labor not in vain. To prove his point, Paul then goes on to the next four verses, or in the next four verses saying, start collecting the money for the poor in Jerusalem. Give and know that it is not futile. That's the point Paul is trying to make here. Give until it hurts, knowing that it is not in vain. Give because resurrection means the end of futility and frustration. The old order has been defeated. And now what remains in its place, as uh, what Paul tells us in another place in 1 Corinthians, is faith, hope, and love. Paul has given us a message. Paul has given a message to all of us who feel the weight of history crashing around us, who stand firm knowing that it is going to crush us, and who know, knowing the odds, counting them up, and the magnitude of the task must still act. Paul has declared a great truth to all of us who cannot sit silent, who cannot sit still, who cannot turn away, who must give even though we know that we will suffer. And it will hurt and it will appear as futility and failure against the powers of the evil world. Paul tells us that because of the cross, the end to all those whose revolutions have failed, but also because of the cross, where like the widow, Jesus gave his whole life. Because of of Jesus' victory, your labor is not in vain. This is the message of the poor widow. It's a story that is not blind to the failings of this world, that laments the widow and pities her. But it's also a story that seeks to face the failings of this world and defy it, confronting it with giving and compassion and doing so in the faith that through it may look, though it may look hopeless and it may look insignificant, Jesus has won a victory and we are assured that our actions are not in vain. This is what it looks like to actually practice resurrection. And now we can go home. (laughs) All right, talk. Yes. One thing that occurs to me is that the widow didn't know the end of the story. I know. Yeah, in, in some ways, she's demonstrating more faith than, than anybody, right? Because she doesn't know. You know. Sometimes you may feel called to do something you don't know. Sure, absolutely. We don't know how things add up, do we? And that's why Paul's words are so encouraging to us. You know, we, we sometimes fret about how effective what we are doing is. And I think what Paul tells us is that, you know, we're not just re- we're not repairing a car that's driving off a cliff. Right. You know, when, when we go out in the world and we help, when we give, when we, you know, try to make the world a better place, you know, as monumental a task as that is, and as much as we are uh, faced with, you know, opposition and as much as we are faced with just the enormity of the problem. What Paul's telling us is because of the resurrection that that is not hopeless. That there's a worth and a value to that. And we may not end, know how it's going to end up. Even when the car goes over yeah, the cliff. Yeah, even when the car goes over the cliff. Right? That's the paradox of it all, isn't it? 
So you're saying don't think about how effective you're giving this. Um, I mean, you know, obviously there's wisdom involved in this. I, I think there is a principle that um, that action is better than inaction. Um, but, you know, I think at the same time, you know, obviously, you know, I, I don't think that, that necessarily we should, you know, turn our brain off about, you know, what's the most effective way. I think as long as we're moving and, and acting, I think that there is some way in which, you know, it's like Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the way he starts off that passage is, I tell you a mystery. I think it is a mystery, but I think it is that, you know, the mystery is that God is working that out. Like he's taking, you know, something that's imperfect and he's going to make it perfect. But, um, you know, I don't necessarily think that means that, that to not have wisdom to go about that. So there's, there's two things that are really interesting about that. The first is, if the widow were making a rational calculation, she'd keep the 